0: You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, good morning. How are we? For our first time guests with us this morning. Welcome. Hope that uh, that you find this church welcoming to you and perhaps uh, your next home. We'd love to walk with you and minister to you uh, whatever season or stage of life you are experiencing right now. And for those of you who are watching or listening online, thank you for tuning in as well. Uh, this morning we are uh, embarking on week four of our Coffee Cup Faith series, a series where we have been exploring Some of the most popular verses that you will most likely find on the side of a coffee cup at your favorite local Christian bookstore. And uh, this morning is a bit of a a unique uh, coffee cup faith sermon, and uh, you will find out why here in a moment. We're going to begin, though, by using our imaginations. Something that, uh, you know, is helpful to do, I think, every now and again, to use your imagination. I want you to go on a journey with me. Imagine this as if it were a movie playing in your mind of two people in love, married, and uh, starting a family, and just living uh, in the midst of a very stressful day. Meet Kate. Kate is 31 years old. She's a nurse in a local emergency room. She's just gotten off of a very, very long shift. You know, nurses work those like 24s, right? Where, where and so she's, it's been a long, long day, and, and she's on her way home. It's evening time. She's on her way home to her beloved husband, Jack. Jack is an engineer about the same age and, and has also had a very stressful day for different kinds of reasons, just a busy, stressful day in the office. Both of them have two small children, and uh, they both get home, and uh, they, neither of them want to cook dinner. They're just not, they don't have what it takes. There's nothing left in the tank. And so they do uh, what most responsible, young, married uh, people with children do. They go to Chick-fil-A. They get there, they eat, they soon remember that really... (laughs) Uh, going out to eat with small children is not a whole lot easier than cooking at home. It's just a different set of problems, right? But at least there's no dishes, and so they're, they're thankful for that. Uh, they wrap things up. They begin their drive back home. Kate is at this point just thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm so stressed out. I'm so tired. You know, I, I just, oh, I still have to do bedtime with the kids, and, and you know, it, it's past bedtime already, and I'm, I'm so exhausted. And they get home, and, and Jack looks at her, and he says, sweetheart, why don't you go and make a cup of tea and get comfortable, and I'll put the kids to bed. Jack has been taking a love and respect course at his local church. <laughs> He's learning. So Kate is thrilled. She's so excited about this. Finally, what a heaven send. She puts the kettle on. She goes and gets her comfortable clothes on. She comes back, and, and she begins to think about what cup do I want to drink my tea from? You know, you've got to have the right cup. And then she sees it. The perfect cup to come at the end of a stressful and long work shift. The reminder that she has needed all day long. She picks up the cup and she looks intently at the words and she reads them to herself. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Mm. It's just what she needed. Be still after a day of being so busy. And know that he is God. And so she adds her tea to it. She adds a little bit of honey and coconut creamer because she's not British. And <laughs> she sets it on the counter. And she thinks, you know what would go really great with this? Is a snack. I need a snack. I need something to eat while I drink this tea. And so she walks over to the cupboard, and she opens it up, and she begins kind of looking through her options. What do I have that will go great with this chamomile lavender tea? And about that time, Jack, her husband, quietly closes the door to the kids' room. The kids are asleep. He has successfully done it. And in total guy fashion, as he's walking into the room to change, he says, hey, babe, will you make me a cup of tea as well? He almost had it. He almost had it, but she's kind, and she says, you know what? You can have that one. You can have, go ahead and take that one, and go get your comfortable clothes on, and then, and then maybe we can watch a TV show, or just spend a little bit of time alone, uninterrupted, before we go to sleep, and so, you know, Kate, she kindly gives her tea to him, and begins, you know, getting the stuff out to make another cup, And but she's a little bit upset, because she thinks, you know, that was a great verse for me. I mean, I, you know, it was a long day, and it really, it really spoke to me, and then she sees it, an even better cup, one that meets her right where she is from the beginning. And so she looks at it, she picks it up, and she reads it quietly to herself, Psalm 46, 5, God is in her, she will not fall, Mm, mm, the perfect cup again for her. And Jack, both. I didn't plan on, it's a silly story, it's not even real, but I, I, I didn't plan on doing two verses. But when I discovered that two of our coffee cup verses came from the same psalm, I couldn't pass it up. I thought, you know, we, we've got to do them both. We've got to somehow work them in here. They're just so convenient. They both literally come out of Psalm 46, they both convey messages that are really nice after honestly a long day, a long, stressful day, very ministering, right? And uh, more than that, they're both often read out of context. And so our task this morning is to understand the context of verse 46 so that we can rightly understand not one but two of our coffee cup verses this morning. I want to say up front that Psalm 46 has a, a very established place within church history, particularly Reformation history. If you're a fan of the Reformation period... You might be aware that Psalm 46 served as the inspiration behind the very well-known hymn written by the great reformer himself, Martin Luther, called A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. Hmm. If you're not familiar with it, it begins like this. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. I just—I got to say, we need to bring that word back, <laughs> bulwark. It just, you just sound smart when you say it. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. So Psalm 46 serves as a uh, really important sort of cornerstone in uh, one of the greatest hymns uh, probably of all time. It also is connected deeply to uh, a particular story in Old Testament history. It is likely the psalm that King Hezekiah either read or recited or even perhaps sang during the events of 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. Now, the, the question on the docket up first is who is Hezekiah, right? And it's a great question. Let me give you a little bit of background. So, after King Solomon, most of you are probably familiar with him, David's son, uh, Solomon sins, and his sin splits the kingdom into two kingdoms. And they become the northern kingdom of Israel with the capital city of Samaria where the Samaritans come from, and the um, southern kingdom of Judah, with the capital city of Jerusalem. Each of these kingdoms throughout history are governed by and led by separate kings. So when you read uh, the book of Kings, you will find uh, that the king that is being talked about is often connected to either Israel or Judah. Hezekiah, was a king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he was a very godly king. And in Second Kings chapter 18... Uh, Chronicles a story where the Assyrian armies, a major world power, new on the scene, goes on this massive conquest. They have this massive army. They have just sacked the northern kingdom of Israel and taken those people into exile. And they have moved their way down south and are approaching Judah. And the people of Judah knew that this was happening. They knew this was coming. They knew that a massive army was, was nearly at their doorstep. They had just fortified their walls. And they knew that it didn't really matter because the Assyrian army was so big and so powerful that Judah knew the only way we have a shot at not dying or being taken into exile is if Yahweh himself shows up. Eventually, Assyria arrives at first Hezekiah tries to pay them off. He goes into the treasury and just like empties out everything and sends it off to the Assyrian king, hoping that that will sort of calm things down and they'll go back to Assyria and and not try to do anything else. That doesn't work. And so imagine, we're going to use our imaginations again here a couple more times, so hopefully your mind is primed for uh, uh, just sort of a scene to play out. The Assyrian army approaches and they begin to surround the city, surround the walls. You can literally feel the ground shake as they march. That's how many of them there are. The sound of tens of thousands of voices begin to shake the walls as they taunt you and talk about the ways they are going to kill you and burn your kingdom to the ground. And suddenly, silence And the commander stands up above the rest, and he begins to yell this message to you, your king, and the rest of the people. This is uh, 2 Kings 18, 28 through 31. He says, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in Yahweh. When he says, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. And then the Assyrian commander strangely quotes that Toby Mac song in verse 32. Choose life and not death. That was not Tobimac, by the way. That was originally the king of Assyria. Just so we're clear. The people of God are terrified. I mean, they are scared to death. They know the Assyrians have a way bigger army than they do. They know that they cannot possibly win. They cannot contend with this group. And then to make matters worse, the Assyrians, they begin to taunt God himself. Verse 33, it says, has the God of any nation Ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? In other words, they're saying, oh, oh, you think that your God is going to save you? Well, that's what every other nation said as well. And their God didn't save them. We took them all. No God can stand against the king of Assyria. They begin mocking Yahweh. And that, at that moment, is when Isaiah shows up, the same prophet, that the book of Isaiah chronicles. He's in Second Kings as well, doing his prophetic ministry. He shows up. He tells Hezekiah not to worry, but to begin to pray that doom is eventually going to fall on the Assyrian king that Yahweh will, in fact, answer their prayer and come and fight their battle, and they will have such an enormous victory over this Assyrian army that all of the nations will know that it wasn't Israel, it wasn't Judah, it was Yahweh who is king of kings. And then we get down to 2 Kings Chapter nineteen, verse thirty-five. This is after uh, dialogue back and forth with Hezekiah and Isaiah, and it says, "And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down one hundred and eighty-five thousand in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose and early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. One angel is all it took. It wasn't a host of angels." It wasn't like a small special ops team of angels, right? Like one on 40 or 50. It was just one angel. The angel of the Lord is all it is. Comes down, 185,000 trained warriors and the Assyrian army gone. Game over. Battle is won. The war has ceased. The Assyrian king flees. The people of God are saved. And God alone receives the glory. An amazing story. What we find in this story in 2 Kings 18 and 19, is that when all else fails, the Lord is present with His people. He is present with His people, He provides for His people, and they in turn rejoice in His power. Now, with that in mind, we're going to read Psalm 46. Now that we understand the background, the backdrop for Psalm 46, you're going to find that this psalm reads a little bit differently. We're going to read the whole thing, just let the text speak for itself, and then we'll break it down into some sections and make some applications along the way. Here it is, Psalm 46. Read along with me if you have your Bibles open. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Psalm reads a little bit differently We're going to find out as we break this down in the context of the events of 2 Kings 18 and 19. What we find, if you want to just sort of synthesize this down into one big idea, is that Psalm 46 is a declaration of God's ability to do for us what we are not able to do for ourselves When the world is caving in, when war is at our gates, when we face an impossible problem and we have tried everything in our own power and nothing seems to make a difference. In other words, when all else fails, God is able. He and he alone is enough. Nothing can stand against him. So what I want to do for the remaining time here is talk about the ways in which this psalm applies to us. We are obviously not the nation of Israel. We are the church. We don't face a physical war. Our kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. But we do face a war every single day against sin. And so what I want to do is apply this psalm to our struggle against sin, against the internal battle of sin. And I want you to see that even in the most hopeless Helpless times of your life when you face the most impossible odds, when nothing seems to work the way that you think it should work, when nothing that you do seems to matter or help, whether it's a battle with addiction, a character defect, some kind of sin struggle in your life that's created conflict between you and a spouse or a wayward child or a friend or a family member, you need to know that what you are not able to overcome, God is able Because when all else fails in your fight against sin, He is enough. I want to approach this psalm in three different sections. Before we jump in and really talk about the content of this, I want you to notice the structure of the psalm. It's naturally broken into three sections for us. We don't even have to to imagine where those breaks might be. If you notice at the end of, of verses 3, 7, and 11, you find this funny little word, selah, Selah is a Hebrew word that we actually really don't know the meaning of. We don't really know what this word means or how to translate it. We assume that it was probably some kind of musical direction given to uh, the people singing or performing the psalm. We think that because this is a word that is exclusively found in the book of Psalms except for one other place, Habakkuk chapter 3, which also forms a song. And so we think that it is probably some kind of musical direction for the people to slow down a little bit each time they come across it, or a full stop. Perhaps it's a time to pray in between verses. We really don't know exactly what it meant, but we do clearly see that the Selah at the end of these verses provides three distinct sections. So we're going to work through it in three sections as well. And and really, I think you can think of this psalm as an outline for what you are to do in your battle against sin, three steps that you take as you fight against the sin in your life, we're going to walk through them together. Are we ready? Yep. All right, good. Well, because there's, there's, we're doing it anyways, because so, that's all that we have. There's no plan B. Uh, step one, when all else fails in your struggle against sin, one, we run into the presence of God. We run into the presence of God. This is what Isaiah told Hezekiah to do. This is what the psalmist suggests as well, that when you uh, begin to battle against your sin in your life, you are to first and foremost run into the presence of God. Look at verse 1. It says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. There's really rich terminology, very... um, Uh, illustrative terminology in this first verse that I don't want you to miss. Um, Look at the three ways that the the presence of God is described here. Number one, it says that he is a refuge. Now, what is a refuge? Refuge. It's a shelter of some kind. It's a place that covers you, whether that be from uh, the outside elements, if it were raining or storming in some way, or perhaps from an attack as well. God is described as a refuge many different times throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you just a few examples. Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 1830 says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all of those who take refuge in him. Boaz said to Ruth in Ruth chapter 2 verse 12, May the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Over and over again, the Lord is seen as a refuge, a place of hiding or security for those who are in need, who are in times of trouble. Now, there are a lot of applications that could be made here on a personal level, and I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to do that in in each of you as individuals, but there is one application for this that I do want to mention for us corporately as the church and specifically as City on a Hill, that when we as a church become a safe place for other people to battle against their sin, we are in some sense reflecting the image of God in which we are created. So some of you who are newer to City on a Hill or or just have never read the mission statement and vision statement of uh, this church, our mission statement begins with these words, becoming a safe place for people to let go of their secrets. Whenever we carry out this mission, we believe very theologically in, in that sense that we are modeling godliness, Because God himself is a refuge, a safe place, a refuge for those who realize they cannot win the fight alone. We changed the statement actually about a year ago uh, briefly, just a small little tweak in the terminology. It used to be making church a safe place, and we amended it to say becoming a safe place. And we did that to communicate the reality that we ourselves are not capable of making this place safe. That's not something we can do in our own power. But that as we submit ourselves to the will of God and walk in his obedience, we will become more like him, the process of sanctification. And in becoming more and more like him, we will become a more and more safe place because God himself is a safe place, a refuge for those who are in need. I want you to know that you are safe here. I want you to know that. I want you to know that you can share in the appropriate environment any of your sin struggles without fear of shame or condemnation, that this is truly a safe place for that to happen. This is not a safe place to keep on sinning, and we will call your butt out on it if it happens, with grace and kindness, of course. (laughs) But it is a safe place to do war against sin. We believe at City on a Hill that there are two things in the world, two realities that level the ground for all of humanity, sin and salvation. These two things level the playing field. Sin levels the ground in that we believe the Bible teaches that all have sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. No one is better than anyone else because all of us are guilty, the Bible says. But beyond that, salvation levels the playing field as well because if we are all guilty of sin, then we are all also in need of a savior, And so when we stand at the foot of the cross and we think about the gospel and its implications, no one is better than the other. No one stands higher than the rest. Everyone is equal and level at the foot of the cross. We want to be a place that reflects that. We want to be a place that reflects the beauty and the power of the God that we worship. And one of the ways that we do that is be... Becoming a safe place to confess sin freely and then allow the Holy Spirit to deal with it in your life on an individual day-to-day basis through a safe process. So there is, I want you to understand, a, a very real and present theological reason behind the mission of this church. We believe that when we are a safe place, we are in every way imaginable modeling who God is, a refuge to those in need. He is our refuge. Second, notice it says He is our strength. This is a word that's often found in conjunction with refuge. And again, it is conveying the idea that God is not only a safe place, but that He is safe because, crucially, nothing is stronger than Him. So whenever you consider the weight of whatever it is that you are facing, God is stronger than that thing. Therefore, you can run to him, you can run into his presence and expect safety because he is greater than the threat that is pursuing you. If you were to imagine for a moment that we were outside enjoying time at a picnic and a tornado broke through the clouds and began ripping through the field. And I was like, hey, come on, follow me. I've got a shelter. And we run across the field and you find this makeshift straw shack. You're not going to feel very safe there because it cannot possibly withstand what is coming. But God is not like that. God is able to overcome. He's stronger than anything that you potentially face that could destroy you. I love being a dad because I think there are just these moments every day, if you pay close enough attention, where you see these really wonderful spiritual illustrations sort of come to life. Uh, I love to cook. It's one of my hobbies. It's something that I do sometimes to to de-stress. And so I'll take my girls with me to the grocery store when I'm picking out ingredients that I, uh, you know, for new recipes that I want to try. They usually hate it. It's fine. I'm teaching them life lessons. (laughs) They can suffer well. But one thing that is surprising, admittedly, is that when we get back from the grocery store, they always want to help bring the groceries inside. And I obviously welcome that. I select what they're able to carry. I don't want them to drop anything that might break or carry anything that might be too heavy. One of the things that they inevitably always want to try to, to grab is like the, you know, 48-pack Sam's-level thing of bottles of water, you know? I'm like, you're nine. You're not going to be able to do that. But, but I let them. They struggle, you know? They go over and try to help one another. They just can't seem to muster it up. And then eventually they kind of look over at me like, okay, you win. We can't lift it, you know? And I, of course, grab it and throw it up on my shoulder and keep walking. They're like, Daddy, you're so strong, you know? And... It, but it's a, it's a really, you know, as silly of a, of a story as it's, it's really a pretty good illustration, I think, of our relationship to our Heavenly Father. That there, there are just things in our lives that we're simply not meant to bear. They're just things that are simply too heavy for you to lift. You can't do it. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much help you've been able to recruit in your life, we cannot lift certain things. They're just too heavy. And once we're finally finished struggling in our own power, doing the same thing over and over and over again, and we finally surrender that thing to Jesus, he picks it up like it is nothing. And we're like, oh, Jesus, you're so strong. Because He is not only our shelter, but He is our strength. Third, it says that He is our help. And I love the imagery here that this conveys. It's a word that means aid or support. You can imagine this word in two different ways. It could mean aid in the sense of like extra troops in battle, right? When things seem to be uh, turning for the worse for you and then this this extra supply of troops come in to aid you in your fight. It could also be thought of as sort of pillars of support, something that undergirds a structure and holds it upright, keeps it level. And it says that, that God is a very present help in Trouble. The word trouble here is the word narrowness. Literally translated, it means narrowness. It imagines a closed space with no escaping. In other words, the the idea in this verse is that when you find yourself with your back against the wall, there's nowhere for you to go, there's nowhere out, the Lord provides the way out. He is the escape, He is the ever present help in that moment where you have no other place. He is the place that allows you to escape it. it. It reminds me of Paul's words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where he says that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The Bible does not say that you won't ever be tempted or allowed to be tempted, but that when God does allow it, he will provide a way out as well. And what do you think that way out looks like? What does it mean practically? What is the way out? How do you access it? It's through surrender to him. It's through surrendering to him. Literally the next verse in First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul goes on, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In other words, when you find yourself in a position with your back against the wall, run away from that which you have put your trust in that is not God, whatever idol you have clung to during that time, and run into his presence. He is your ever-present help in trouble, your shelter, and your strength. I think it's important for me to mention this, lest you get any wild ideas about what this verse does not mean. Whenever you run into the presence of God, it is important for you to know it does not mean that somehow all of your problems will become magically fixed. You need to know that. Sometimes our sin in our lives set into motion consequences that are simply (coughs) unavoidable, that you just can't escape. They're irreversible. You need to get that. You need to understand we don't run into the presence of God when all else fails so that we can keep our lives exactly the same way. I say that all the time. Guys especially get to this place where they're like, all right, I'm ready to surrender. I want to run into the presence of God. And then they get mad when everything else around them is falling apart. And it's like, well, but you did that. And God never promised to keep it together. But what he does promise is that when you run into his presence, even if all else fails and everything falls apart around you, you have all you need in him. Verse 2, literally, the next verse in Psalm 46 says, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, even though all of it is breaking apart, we will not fear because we have a God who is our shelter and our strength and our ever-present help, and He is enough. When all else fails in your struggle against sin, you run first into the presence of God. Second, we remember the provision of God. Look at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. This is a verse that's speaking about the city of Jerusalem. It's often referred to as the city of God in the Old Testament. It's where the temple was built, where God's presence dwelt. It's where the tabernacle was before that. Before that, it's where David unified the kingdom. Uh, It is a central component to life as an Israelite and often referred to as the city of God or the city of the Lord or the city of David. Just as a side note, I think this is kind of a fun Bible study uh, little connection that I want you to be able to make. There's, I think, an intentional nod to the book of Genesis in this verse. Uh, This is a verse that's talking about Jerusalem, the city of God, and notice that it refers to God in this verse as the most high. That's a, a... An interesting name for the Lord, certainly a name applied to God in several other places in the Bible, but the first time God is ever referred to as the Most High comes in uh, Genesis chapter 14, and it is said by perhaps the most mysterious figure in the entire Bible, a man by the name of Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek says in Genesis chapter fourteen, verses eighteen through twenty, it says, "And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and grape juice." Right? It says, "Great." It does say one. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram and said, "Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your." So Melchizedek is praying this blessing, and for the first time ever in biblical history, we get this title for God, the Most High. And notice Melchizedek's uh, description here. How is he described in this verse? He's called the King of Salem. Now, this is not talking about Salem, Massachusetts. Hopefully that does not uh, escape you. There is no witch trials happening here during this time. Uh, This is actually an early name for a city that we eventually come to know as Jerusalem. Yeah, Jerusalem. In fact, Psalm 76 verse 2 reflects this reality. It says, His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. Zion. I think the psalmist here, because he's talking about Jerusalem, the city of God, uses the term most high as a nod to the first king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, king of Salem. It's just a fun little side note for you. I I think it's important for you to see how the Bible interacts with itself, that though it is written holistically, collectively uh, by the Holy Spirit, that each of these individual authors that God used to write these books... Had knowledge of other parts of the Bible and oftentimes connected ideas into their own writing. Notice it says something about a river in verse 4. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This is likely a reference to the Gihon River. Uh, Jerusalem, geographically, sat on top of an underground water supply, a river known as the Gihon River. It's first mentioned as well. Uh, I think unironically, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 12. It's one of the four rivers that flows out of the Garden of Eden, and it runs underneath Jerusalem. It opens up in an area outside of the city walls called the Kidron Valley. And in old days, people would have to go outside of the kingdom with basins to fill fresh water into them and carry them back up into the kingdom. It was a lot of work, it was rather inconvenient. But they continue to do that until someone had the bright idea to tunnel from the center part of Jerusalem down into the Gihon River to funnel water up into a pool that was first called Shiloah, later known as the Pool of Siloam, a place where we see Jesus do a lot of ministry actually in the Gospels. And that tunnel was dug out by none other than Hezekiah. The same king in Second Kings 18 and 19. Second 2 Kings 2020 20 tells us that it was Hezekiah who tunneled out this uh, vessel, this means of getting water into the inside of the city. And it was an important event, because not only was it more convenient, it was necessary during war. You couldn't just walk outside when you were under attack, under siege, to get water if you were surrounded. So when Jerusalem was under attack, under the leadership of Hezekiah, after this was done, they could shut inside the gates and hide behind their fortified walls for a very long time because they had access to fresh water the entire time. Now, the psalmist is using that as an imagery to communicate to us something about the reality of who God is in our lives. God is like that river channeling in streams of fresh water into the center part of us. The Lord Himself is doing that. He's the source of life and provision, especially when you are under attack. And He's not an outside source, He is an internal source. And this is where one of our coffee cup verses comes into play. Verse 5 God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. Now, it is probably clear to you by now that the her in this verse is not a tired 31-year-old nurse named Kate who just made tea before bedtime. This is talking about the people of God, Israel, her, the city of God, and now in our context, the church. Now, let me be clear about something. The application of God in the midst of young 31-year-old nurse Kate is not necessarily wrong. God is, as believers, in our midst, in, in us, in dwelling in us. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, "Do you not know that the Holy Spirit, or that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you?" Do you not know that? He says in Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So you can, just so we're clear, rightly say God is in her, she shall not fall. Just not because of Psalm (laughs) 46.5, because of some other passages in the New Testament. I want you to get this, that when all else fails in your life, The point of this is that you will have all you need because God is in your midst providing it. He will channel into your life water, not physical water from an underground river, but living water from the Holy Spirit to sustain you and refresh you and remind you that you are not alone as you struggle and fight and wage war against the sin that seeks to devour you. When all else fails and your struggle against sin. We run into the presence of God, we remember the provision of God, and last, we respond with the praise for God. Let me give you a truth, one that is always true, I believe. The presence of God should always lead you to the praise of God. The presence of God should always lead you to the praise of God. I want you to use your imaginations again for a moment. Go back to that night in 2 Kings 19.35 when the angel of the Lord comes and slays 185,000 trained killers, trained soldiers who were were deadly. And, And where there was once rumbling of walls and ground and the taunting of God's people and God Himself Is now replaced with an eerie silence. Maybe some crackling of fire here and there, but otherwise eerily quiet. And the gates of Jerusalem open and Hezekiah the king comes walking out with the people of God behind him, out into the battlefield, stepping over dead bodies, blood everywhere, carnage everywhere, chariots on fire, just an absolute slaughter. And they walk out in awe, honestly pretty terrified of of what this, of how this could have happened, reminded of God's eternal power, that such a powerful army couldn't stand a chance against him. And imagine that Hezekiah walks out into the midst of it and the people of God are coming out to observe. And Hezekiah turns to his people And he holds his hands out so as to reference the destruction around them. And he recites to them the very well-known Psalm 46, verses 8 and 9. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The people of God are confronted with this reality that there is no battle that Yahweh cannot win. That there is actually no battle left to fight for them. This is the context for the second verse. They're standing there. The battle has been fought. It has been won. Dead bodies everywhere, fire, blood, blood. And God says to them in that moment, be still and know that I am God. He's not saying be still because you're too busy right now. That's a fine application. I don't have any problem with that. If, that. if the coffee cup speaks to you at the end of a long day, totally fine. But what he's saying here is be still because there's nothing left for you to do. Because I've already done it for you. There's no more fight left. So just sit there, be still, and worship me. Notice what he says. He continues in verse 10. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The only thing left to do now that the battle is over, the battle belongs to him, and it has been won, is for the people of God to praise him. That's it. That's all we can do. This is why the gospel is so powerful. Jesus is a mighty warrior. He has conquered our enemy. He has laid waste sin and death and left its lifeless corpse on the battlefield. And he stands over it all and he says, It is finished. There is nothing left for you to do. You don't have a part in this fight. You, you couldn't have fought it. You couldn't have won. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. It would have devoured you, but Jesus has conquered it. And so be still, for there's nothing left, and know that he is God. And fall on your face and worship him, for he's worthy of our praise. Some of you, a, a few weeks ago, you, you joined a freedom group for the first time, maybe in your, your life. Maybe it wasn't for the first time. Maybe it was a second or third time. And, and regardless, you thought to yourself, you know, new month, new me finally taking charge of my life, getting things right, getting things in order. And now you're, what, week four, week five in the process? Things are getting a little a little thick and, and, and you are wondering, I'm not sure if I can really handle this. And so I, I want to reassure you of something. You can't. You can't handle it. You, you have... Not nearly enough of what it takes to handle it. You cannot beat the sin that you are fighting and struggling against right now in your life. But listen to me. Jesus not only can handle it, he has handled it. He has handled it. It is finished. Your job is not to win the war. Your job is not even to fight the war. Jesus won the war. Your job as you struggle on a day-to-day basis is to simply run into the presence of God who loves you, your shelter, your strength, your help when you are in trouble, when your back is against the wall, to remember the provision of God in your life, the streams of living water pouring into you through the Holy Spirit who indwells you as a believer, and simply to respond in worship. And we want to give you that opportunity to do that right now. I'm going to pray, and we are going to sing. Uh, The the praise band is going to come back out and lead us in a song that we have sung a number of times, a song that we call the Lord of hosts. That's actually not named the Lord of hosts. It's named Psalm 46. And then in parentheses, it is titled the Lord of hosts. And now that we have worked through this, now that we have worked through what this psalm means and the background of war and destruction and the desolations that God brings upon His enemies and the refuge and the strength that we find in Him, we'll find a new appreciation, I believe, for what this song means. Even those of you who are in this 12-step process right now, you are trying. You, it's like you, you know, what is it? You, you, you recognize that there is a higher power, Jesus, who can handle whatever it is that is powerless, that you are powerless over in your life and and you are going to surrender that thing to him. And then what do you do? You continue to try to fight it yourself. It's the hardest thing in the world to just let God do the work in your life for you and get out of the way. Instead, we run into his presence. We remember his provision through the Holy Spirit and we respond in worship. When all else fails for you, Jesus, the Lord of hosts, does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you. We are grateful that you are greater, stronger, and more powerful than anything in our lives. Lord, you make the war cease by the power of your blood on the cross, and through the resurrection you conquer sin and death and you invite those of us who would believe to share in the blessing that you have made possible, the blessing of of freedom, salvation, no condemnation, no shame. Would we be a safe place that reflects who you are? Would we be a people who recognize that we cannot fight the fight before us, but that you, God, have already won it, and that you go before us on our behalf. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Amen. Church, please stand and let's sing one last song. The bow and bends the spear, tells the wars to cease. Mighty One of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire. Lord of hosts, you're with us in the fire. Yeah, yeah. to speak. The earth that bows and all the mountains move into the sea. Lord, you know the hearts of men still
0: step to really deal with uh, things that you've maybe never told anyone And, and, and I want to implore you stop trying to fight that on your own bring it to someone it's a safe place the Lord is our refuge and strength and we want to be a refuge for the people of God as well as we model him to the rest of the world Prayerfully consider that, what that looks like, and come and talk to one of us. We can help you get to the appropriate environment where you can begin to do that kind of work and hopefully for the first time see the Lord of hosts go before you and fight that fight that you have lost over and over again. God bless you. Thankful for the ministry that God is doing here in our midst. No thanks to many of you. You are the heartbeat of sitting on a hill. I said no thanks. I meant thanks too. Sorry. broken vessels that God uses to reach broken people. That's who we are. We'll see you next week. God bless you.